I want to just give just some space for you guys to share what are some things that you're feeling, experiencing, or even just seeing and what's been happening the last couple of weeks. It's hard to even now package what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing all into like a neat little put a bow on it because there's so, so much. As a black man in this country, I I know my worth, right? Mm -hmm. I learned, learned, my mother taught me my worth, right? Growing up, as from, from as far back as I can remember being in the in, in the bathtub, my mom gave me a give me a bath and she would make me say black is beautiful. And then she would educate me later on in life as to why she had me repeat that phrase. So I know my worth. And so that's why it's it's even more frustrating that I know my worth and I know the worth of all of of, of humans in general. And to see that worth not seen across the country is really frustrating. But then on the other side, I'm watching all walks of life. Everyone is is saying like, this is hitting different. All walks of life are coming together to say, no, there's definitely something wrong in this country. People who would have buried their heads in the sand Mm -hmm. coming out because we watched that man be murdered for eight minutes. To see people come together the way that we've seen at the protests, I was really touched by, there was, there was this white guy and, and his daughter, she couldn't have been more than four years old on his shoulders. Wow. And she's screaming out, no justice, no peace. She's mm-hmm. screaming out George Floyd's name. And her dad is right there with her. This is different. I feel like this is the beginning of some real lament for the way that we have turned a blind eye towards even just the inception of this country. I'm all over the place. I'm tired of having conversations. I'm also here for it with conversations. I need to help my, my brothers and sisters, whoever that is, to, to really understand that we all suffer from, from white supremacy. But I'm seeing the church respond in a really powerful way because this is this is something that I think breaks God's heart. And so to see a lot of the church come out, figure it out as imperfect as it is, because the church is imperfect, try to figure this thing out. I am also hopeful. It, it feels like the scale's tipping in a way that I don't know if I've seen in my lifetime. I've been surprised in a hopeful way in two ways. One is you are seeing people that have never spoken out or marched or protested or had dialogue about these issues coming out. Like you're seeing protests pop up in 
in Long Island in like all these suburbs and you're, you know, I'm, I'm seeing my timeline fill up with these protests in like rural, you know, counties and, and places where aren't exactly hotbeds of social justice advocacy. We're already starting to see it, it move the needle with like legislation. And then secondly, it feels like the clapbacks from reactionary people are becoming more and more anemic. As you said, there, typically when these events happen, people have all sorts of stuff to say. And it, it just feels like the egregiousness of this, putting this issue in people's faces has led to, it feels like the, the people that want to deny that this is real are losing ground. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, I had this vision like this week where I was just thinking about our kids, you know, 20 years from now. And how it feels like this could be the beginning towards a world where they don't have a lived experience of, of, of racism. And that feels really new. And so maybe that's naive, but that's just what I've been feeling with the momentum. And I'm hoping that it keeps up. Honestly, I, I just am tired. First of all, 2020 is just crazy, weird. And I'm trying to like, you know, live my own life. And every single day I wake up to more conversation about it, more ignorance from people, more injustice on social media from, you know, from the police who are just attacking protesters or for, you know, from the president and things he's saying and things he does. You know, I just am tired, man. Like mentally, emotionally, it is draining and it's hard to uh, stay present. It's hard to like be productive sometimes. I really like how we are coming together and, and actually calling people out specifically. You know what I mean? Like a, maybe a police officer did something and within the next day, it'll be on, you know, an IG somewhere and people actually taking those steps to hold people accountable for what they do and say, even if it's online. I think we should set a precedent that um, that kind of behavior is not going to be tolerated. And it should not be tolerated in our country. Other than that, man, yeah, it's hard. I I have this sense that good is going to come out of this. Um, I think at the end of the day, there I think there's hope. You mentioned how like you're tired. I I echo the same thing. I come home every day. I'm tired. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to watch anymore. But then I think about those who who came before me. I think about. <clears throat> my my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, who were, you know, there, there's there's my one of my uncles was a victim of police brutality, like for no reason. And I, I think about those struggles, and I think about the Black Panther movement, what it really was, and and what it wasn't. I think about those who march. I think about. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I think about Malcolm X. To those who are fighting this fight far before us where the stakes were way higher than getting pelted in the face, you know, which is horrible across the board and and things need to change. But I grew up hearing the stories of of the dogs being sick on us. I heard, heard grew up with the stories of, of raids and, and, and people being gunned down in the streets just for fighting for their rights. I go out and vote any chance I get because I know that people that look just like me died for the right for me to vote. And so when I think when I'm tired, I tell myself, 
<laughs> and like and just like that sweet like black auntie voice honey you ain't tired enough and so i want i want all of our listeners to be to be encouraged we are tired but hey we are we are we are moving the needle we are pushing the ball down the field and so we need to keep going so that this country really truly can be equal for all peoples all walks of life too many people before us didn't have the pleasure of sitting down on a podcast from the comfort of our our home on zoom there's such a responsibility we stand on the shoulders of giants and so podcasts like this i don't care how tired i am i will gladly bring this conversation because i think about those who came before me those who fought and afforded me the rights to even sit here and do this i'm not tired enough i think our our guest for today this is probably the best time we can have this guest on um so coming up we have dr shinchan ra on the city image podcast if you don't know who he is he's an amazing author and speaker I know all of us on this podcast have been blessed by his work immensely, and I'm so excited um, to have uh, him speak to us about these issues of race in America. So stay tuned for Dr. Sinton Rao coming up after the break. This is City Image. How's it going, City Image fam? Welcome back to the City Image Podcast, and we have an amazing guest today. Um, we hope that you guys are blessed by Dr. Soon Chan Ra. Dr. Soon Chan Ra is a professor of church growth and evangelism at North Park Seminary in Chicago. He has authored several books, including Prophetic Lament, A Call for Justice in Unsettling Times, Unsettling Truths, The Ongoing Dehumanization Legacy of the Doctrine of Discovery, and The Next Evangelicalism, Freeing the Church from Western Cultural Captivity. Uh, Dr. Soon Chan Ra is also um, just an amazing speaker. He travels. Um, and I remember my first experience with him um, at Frequency Conference a few years back. It was uh, an amazing experience. So Dr. Soon Chan Ra, welcome to City Image. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm fanning out a little bit right now. <laughs> I'm when Andy was like, we got some time, I lost my mind. Um, so like, like, like Danny said, we are super excited. Oh man, I, I gotta tell you, um, I mean, before, before we even start, I just, I just wanna let you know uh, uh, how greatly I appreciate um, you, your voice in these conversations. Um, I came from, I, I could, I'll just say an Asian church. Um, uh, Korean pastor, predominantly Chinese congregation, uh, experienced some really tough discrimination yeah. um, in that church. And uh, eventually uh, myself and, and a lot of people decided to to leave that church. Wow. And at that time, my pastor, who's also one that, that kind of broke off, um, sent me, uh, I think you were speaking at, I can't remember which conference it was, but the things that I heard, I was, it was really truly water to my soul at, at a mm. time that I was devastated. Um, 
been really hurt by my uh, uh, to just hear someone who is not black speak with such a <laughs> in that in that realm. I, it, it was healing. It was healing. Wow. So thank you, thank you, thank you for, for thank you. Thank you. That's actually very affirming and very very good to hear. Thank you very much. Of course, of course. Thank you. Want to get right into it? Um, sure. This is a a wild time. I think in, in our in our generation, uh, in this time in America, um, I think there's been an across the board condemnation of the George Floyd murder. Yes. But many American Christians still see this as an isolated event. Yes. What would you say to someone who denies the fact that these are systemic, uh, that there are systemic racial injustices in this country? Yeah, I think um, this is very painful uh, to watch and observe that right now that there is a very strong, and I would call it a moral movement. It is a moral movement and moral outrage against the injustices in American society. And it is going across the sections. It's going across race, gender, uh, religion. It's just, it's just a, an incredible moment where um, there is this outrage against an immorality, the immorality of racism in the, in the world. I think what's really sad for me as a Christian um, is that it seems like the Christians who are being the least moral in this conversation. Uh, it's the Christians who we should have the right vocabulary to speak into this issue. And it's sad that many Christians are identifying this incident as, hey, it's just a few bad apples. Or, hey, it's just an isolated incident. Or, hey, it's just an individual problem. And what we're not doing as American Christians is applying biblical concepts uh, to a broken reality. So here's the way I think I'm seeing it develop now, especially for, I would say, specifically evangelicals. And I would actually be more specific and say white evangelicals are the ones who are seeing this not as a systemic issue, but as a very personal, individualistic issue. And to that, I would say that... Um, you're probably more captive and more captured by a Western philosophy than by the words of God, um, that you are more shaped by American Western culture. And that culture is wrapped up in a hyper-individualism, a rugged individualism. And that's not in the Bible. A rugged individualism is not in the Bible. In fact, when you look at the books of Scripture and you say, okay, what are... How is, this, how is scripture written? Uh, of the 66 books of the Bible, uh, three, maybe three of the books of the Bible are written to individuals. That's uh, Timothy, Titus, Philemon. Nobody reads that anyway. So you've got like 63 out of 66 books of the Bible <laughs> written to communities and to people groups. And yet we interpret these words in such hyper-individualistic fashion that we are doing a disservice uh, to the word of God. And so because uh, American Christians in particular are caught up in a Western philosophy of hyper-individualism, we can't see beyond those barriers and boundaries, not the barriers that the scripture offers. The scripture is very clear. It's written to the church in Corinth. It's written to the people of God. It's written to the church in Ephesus. Uh, these, are, these are very clearly written to be read and applied in community, not just for one person to read and decide, oh, this applies only to me, and it's just between me and God. And that's the way we have to look at the problem of racism. Uh, racism is, is a problem that is a systemic problem. 
this is pretty well documented in that we are seeing individuals who are operating out of their, how deeply ingrained the, the you know, systemic injustice is in their bodies and in their minds and in their souls and how deeply embedded it is in our systems and structures. So for me as a Christian in particular, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, saddened that it's not the Christians who are at the front line saying, of course, systemic evil exists because we know the reality of a broken world. Um, another example of this biblically is to look at the passage in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It's one of our key passages as evangelicals. We cling to that passage to talk about salvation. Uh, but that passage has been so misinterpreted on hyper-individualistic terms. So, you know, I was a you know, youth pastor for many years. This is a how I would use that passage, right? You would get all the kids in the room and you want this to be the last night where they all come to Christ and you say, for God so loved John, for God so loved Mary, for God so loved so-and-so. And we individualize a verse that was not meant to be read by individuals. Because the mm. word there, love the world, is the Greek word cosmos. And cosmos are the systems and structures and institutions and the world as a corporate entity, not as an individualistic entity. So when we see these wor the world through this hyper-individualistic lens, we're not really being biblical Christians. We're being cultural Christians. We're being Christians express expressing uh, an American worldview rather than a biblical worldview. And so the reality of sin, which is a bedrock, bedrock uh, expression of the gospel, we don't really know about the power of our salvation until we know the power of our depravity. So I don't understand why Christians are not at the front line saying, yes, there is an individual sin, but there is also an, a systemic sin. And uh, the scriptures again testify this. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is not against this individual who did an atrocious demonic act of putting his knee on the, on the necks of this, uh, of this person made in the image of God. That is an evil, sinful act. But our battle is not against this flesh and blood. Our battle is against the powers and principalities. That's a systemic structural problem. And so for us as Christians in particular, to be resisting uh, pointing out sin and evil in the world, I, I, where do we go wrong? I mean, the Christians should be at the front line of this saying, uh, this, this points to the need for Christ, that we live in this broken world where individuals are sinful, but we also live in a broken world where our systems and structures are also sinful and evil. So my deepest, deepest disappointment is that the ones in American society right now who is resisting and providing the greatest amount of resistance to confront and combat the systemic evil of racism are actually the Christians when we should be at the front line saying, of course, this is the way that this is what happens when there's brokenness in our world. Our systems and structures also get corrupted and evil and broken. And so again, Christians have this vocabulary and we are not using it at all. And it's, it's, it's very disappointing. And, um, and it's, it's quite disheartening to see the Christians resisting it rather than actually at the forefront of this. You know, I, I watched, you, you did a video with, uh, I think it's called The Legacy Project. Um, yes. And that story broke my heart. Because mm. uh, it's so reminiscent of, of my story. Not the, not the Korean part. Um, mm. Clearly, <laughs> I'm not Korean. But, <laughs> but the, 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 the narrative of, the the welfare queen you know mm. i grew up single mom we we had nothing and my mom worked so so hard 
Mm. And when I hear those narratives, I get just as upset um, as you do. It hurts on a deep, deep level. Um, I think narrative is an important thing to talk about. We spoke with Mark Charles and he spoke mm. about the narrative of, of white supremacy in this, in this country. So I know that you speak a lot about how narrative shapes culture. What narratives or stories have shaped our culture and contributed to white supremacy? Yeah, the narrative piece of it, I think, is, um, is something we haven't really examined in terms of the brokenness in the world. So the two ways that most, um, most American Christians have looked at, one is, as we've said, this hyper-individualistic way. How do we confront racism? Well, we get rid of prejudice in individuals. And by getting rid of and transforming, getting rid of prejudice and transforming individuals will change the world. Uh, that approach was clearly debunked by the work of Emerson and Smith in Divided by Faith, where they say that's called the miracle motif. It doesn't happen. Um, and the belief that white evangelicals have is that you, just by changing individuals, you change the world. Uh, they call it an inadequate toolbox. They don't have the right tools to combat the evil that is in the world because their view is so individualistic. Uh, but then the other side of it is what we call systems and structural perspective, that we want to change the systems, we want to change the structures of the world. Uh, and that also is in some sense limited because you have to do both and. You have to address individual prejudice, but also systemic structural racism. Um, I'm advocating for that third leg of, this, of, the, of the stool, uh, which is the embedded internalized narratives. Uh, Willie Jennings uses the phrase imagination. Uh, there are other scholars who uh, use words like worldview. Uh, but the idea of narrative, imagination, and worldview allude to something similar, which is that we have internalized the values and the stories and the, uh, and the perspectives that are out there in the world so much that we operate instinctively out of that. Uh, there's a great book by Sam Wells called Improvisation. And in a positive way, he says, if we have embodied a character in such a way we will operate out of that character. Think of it as a, a good method actor in Hollywood uh, who embodies a character so deeply that uh, you know, uh, whenever he, a, a scene comes up, he or she acts out of that method. And, you know, that's their method to deeply embody that character. So instinctively, reflexively, they operate out of that internalized character. That's what narratives can do. Narratives can internalize in a, a nation, in a church, in a people group and in a society. And so when we say, what are the narratives that are embedded? It is what are the stories? What is the imagination? What is the worldview that has become so embedded in our world right now, in our society right now, that everyone acts reflexively out of it? And our responses are not uh, biblical responses. They are embedded narrative, uh, emotional, um, uh, imaginative responses that we have been trained with and internalized for decades and decades. Um, and uh, two of the ones that I would like to identify as problematic um, uh, narratives in the American church and American society is exceptionalism and triumphalism. Uh, the idea of exceptionalism is the belief that uh, America is an exceptional nation but with the underlying assumption that this is an exceptional Christian nation, but that this is an exceptional Christian nation for European bodies, for white bodies, that this nation was founded by these founding fathers, and again, actually uh, a male gender as well, 
that the white landowning male was how this nation was built for and by whom this nation was built. And so that narrative of exceptionalism is a, uh, a deeply embedded narrative out of which one acts reflexively. And by the way, this crosses party boundaries, right? Democrats, Republicans alike will, uh, tr- uh, will trumpet this whole idea of exceptionalism. But underneath that is a racialized narrative to say that America is exceptional because these white European bodies cross this great sea to claim a promised land to f- fulfill a manifest destiny that goes from sea to shining sea. And that meant, of course, the enslavement of Africans. That, of course, meant the genocide of the native communities and the uh, exploitation of of Asian labor, the exploitation of Latino and Latino labor, uh, all for the benefit of an exceptional American Christian nation that needs to be built up. And so that's why uh, when we raise the issue, well, maybe America is not that great. Maybe there are some aspects of our history that we need to take a second look at and say, I don't know if we want to go back to that. I don't know if slavery was all that exceptional. I don't know if Jim Crow laws are all that exceptional. I don't know if mass incarceration is all that exceptional. So when you raise these questions or the, or the, the brutal uh, police state that, we've, that some people feel live in, I don't think that's exceptional. Right. And when you raise those questions, the pushback is very strong. Have you noticed, like, especially white American Christians, because they've been so embedded in the narrative of American white Christian exceptionalism, that if anything confronts that assumption, they're going to push back really hard. And then the question is, well, you hate America. No, we don't hate America. We just want the truth to be told. Well, you know, you, uh, you're causing division. You're not the one, you know, you're not, you're causing, you're, you're pointing out this evil stuff is causing division. No, we're just telling the truth about our nation's history. We're not causing anything. Um, so there is a reflexive action by many white American Christians to defend this idea or narrative of American exceptionalism when, one, there's no biblical truth to it, and two, there really isn't historical truth to it. Uh, but that narrative has been so deeply embedded in that folks act instinctively out of it and try to uh, push against anything that would challenge that American exceptionalism. Well, given how reflexive it is and how embedded it is, do you, do you have a hope? Have you, like, have you seen people be unwired from that? And if you have, what, what does that unraveling look like? Because I think a lot of people are having conversations right now and realizing oh my gosh, the, the person that I'm talking to is so embedded in this narrative. And really, we're yeah. guilty of that too. But, you know, uh, yeah, so, so what does it look like for someone to unravel from that? I think uh, this is one of those amazing moments in uh, human history where um, that kind of unraveling can occur. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, uh, Richard Sennett, who is a... a, a, a formerly at NYU, now at London School of Economics, he he puts it this way, without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us ever want to change? Mm. I think he's a secular philosopher, but it's one of the most incredible insights into discipleship, right? We don't Mm. really change until there is a disruption that says, wait, this is not right. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. So the moment that we're in right now is that there was a series of events that caused a a catastrophic re-examination of our values. Right. And it was appropriate to do so. Uh, Obviously, there was the the COVID-19 spread. And what we saw was, again, people acting reflexively to scapegoat, 
hey, this is the Chinese virus after all. So it's not America's fault. It's the Chinese who caused this virus. And then the racist backlash against all Asian Americans, not just Chinese Americans, but against all Asian Americans that we saw from the White House all the way to our neighborhoods. Uh, so that reflexive action, uh, it, was, it was brought out by COVID-19. Uh, the high rate of unemployment. And, and COVID-19 also revealed to us that uh, the ones who are the most damaged by this uh, pandemic were the most marginalized and the most vulnerable, which happened to be Black, Brown, and Native communities. Uh, so, you know, the, the two, two of the deaths that were closest to me were actually two students of mine. Uh, they are uh, African-American students at Stateville Prison. And that was incredibly the most vulnerable population because you are in a petri dish where the virus can spread like crazy. And two of my students that I've taught and who I sat next to in a classroom and who I heard their stories and, you know, uh, just heartbroken by their, their stories, uh, they died because COVID-19 was, uh, you know, uh, and, and disproportionately impacting black and brown communities. Uh, my co-author, you've had him before, Mark Charles, a Native American from the Navajo Reservation. His family, uh, extended family, still lives on the Navajo Reservation. So these stories that um, we thought were out there, you know, hey, I live in the suburbs, and, uh, you know, but now they're, they're so close to home. And then that image of, of George Floyd uh, literally having the life choked out of him uh, with a knee on his neck, um, it was one of those moments where I think that image of this is what racism actually looks like. And that did begin to change some of the narratives. Uh, for those who said, oh, you know, whatever, Black Lives Matter, or whatever, you know, racism in America, whatever, systemic injustice, that visual um, was just upending a lot of people. Now, here's the tough part. Uh, as I said earlier, um, the majority of Americans were profoundly impacted, and that's why you're seeing the mass protests the way they are and the changes that are being called for the way they are. But the group for whom the narrative is the hardest to root out has been white evangelical Christians. Um, and that's because the negative narrative had been so deeply rooted in that it's harder to root that out. So for those for whom this kind of dysfunctional narrative around America as a chosen nation, exceptional, uh, you know, uh, destined by God to be, you know, the light that shines into all the world. Again, not in the Bible. It's an American contrivance. Uh, for those for whom that narrative is so deeply embedded, they're the ones out there saying, make America great again. Um, for them, this image is not enough. And that's what's so frightening. Uh, that that image of a man with the knee on his neck for, you know, eight plus minutes um, has, has, com has completely uh, upended the narrative around white supremacy for the majority, large majority of American Americans. But the, the most entrenched, sadly, has been American Christians. Um, I think one of the ways that we counteract that then is more of the, what we call counter narratives. When you have a narrative moving in one direction with deeply embedded uh, movement and uh, it's hard to uh, it's hard to stop that momentum, and that's what we're seeing with American white Christians. That narrative of American exceptionalism, that narrative of white supremacy, has been so ingrained in that culture for so long that it is almost impossible to dig that out until you introduce more and more counter narratives. Um, I'll give you a quick example of this: of how you can't beat a narrative with more of the existing narrative; it only fuels it. 
Uh, and this is the example around the red campaign a few years ago. Uh, several years ago, with much fanfare on Super Bowl Sunday, they launched a, a red campaign that had Denzel and Tom Hanks and, uh, you know, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, all the Hollywood A-listers, Bono, uh, do this commercial to raise money for the red campaign. And that funding was to go to provide AIDS relief and AIDS sub-Sahara Africa. And what happened, though, was that they spent $10 million uh, to do this ad campaign to raise money for the red campaign. Uh, they did a review of the finances. The red campaign spent $10 million over 10 years. After 10 years, they raised $10 million. So how much did they raise? Nothing. They raised nothing. Uh, now, do you remember what the red campaign was? You were supposed to do what? Go out and buy a red iPod go out and buy a red t-shirt from Target, go out and buy red-tagged items from Levi's, and then a portion of that will go towards the AIDS pandemic relief in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, who made billions of dollars during the red campaign? Not the campaign itself, not a you know, support for HIV pandemic in South in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, but these million, billion, trillion dollars company made even more and more money. Why was that? The problem was we were trying to fight an existing narrative with more of the same narrative. What is the main problem with the AIDS pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa? Is it that we don't have a cure? We don't have a cure, but we have treatment. We have treatment. How do I know this? Because I'm a huge basketball fan, and one of my favorite players of all time is Magic Johnson. And I remember vividly when Magic Johnson announced on national television that he was HIV positive, and my first thought, as many people at that time, was that Magic Johnson is dead. Three months, six months, maybe a year, but Magic Johnson, because he has the HIV virus and is AIDS positive, is dead. 25 years later, he is not only healthy, he is very wealthy, and he's looking a little chunky, if you ask me. Magic Johnson has done really well, even after an AIDS-HIV diagnosis. Now, how has he been able to do this? Because there is a medication, it's a cocktail of medication and drugs that allows him to live a very healthy, wealthy, prosperous life for 25 plus years without any signs of him slowing down, by the way. 25 years later, he's still very healthy. So it's not that there isn't a way to confront the AIDS pandemic in, in Africa. It's that we choose not to do it. Why? Because of the greed of the pharmaceutical companies that wants to charge the same amount for a African in, in Kenya that they charged Magic Johnson's million dollar insurance policy. Mm. So it's not that there isn't a cure out there or a solution to the problem of the AIDS pandemic in, in Africa. Uh, it's that the problem is the greed. And so how do you fight greed with more greed? Mm. How do you fight the greed of the pharmaceutical companies by inciting and, 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 and poking at the greed of human beings, of materialism, of like, I want that product. I want to buy this. You can't fight materialism with more materialism. And so for the narrative of American exceptionalism and the narrative of white supremacy that is so deeply embedded in American society, you can't add more exceptionalism and supremacy on top of that. So one of the cautions that I have right now in this very exciting moment, I think, is if this movement towards racial reconciliation and racial justice is led by white voices, then that's actually going to add fuel to the fire. 
because we will have affirmed white supremacy. This problem can't be fixed unless white people get involved. This problem can't be fixed unless white people lead. And so especially if white evangelical leaders say, we're going to take over this movement and we're going to make it do right. And we're going to change the, the conversation because now we're bringing the gospel message into this conversation and white evangelical leaders decides to usurp this movement. That will actually be the exact adding fuel to the movement that is already dysfunctional mm. in the first place, which is white supremacy. What we need then is counter movements that actually speak against the narrative of white supremacy. So what I would love to see um, is for a white evangelical leader to go to an African-American single mom or to go to an African-American uh, local church and say, I'm going to shut down my church for about a month and I'm just going to come to your church and sit at your feet and learn from this church for the next month. Um, or I'm going to, you know, um, cancel my sermon series for the next uh, month and I'm going to ask uh, voices of color there are a lot of good Christian voices of color out there yeah. to come in and take over my pulpit for the next month. I'm not going to talk about this issue. I'm going to ask those who've lived through the issue to talk about this issue. So my concern is that we can uh, affirm and keep the, the uh, momentum of white supremacy going by actually trying to solve the problem, by saying, oh, we're going to fix this by adding as many strong white voices as possible. Have as many white evangelicals speak about this as possible. Actually, no, the best thing might be for white evangelical voices to kind of move out of the way so that voices of color could actually speak up into this. So, so one of the narratives that you've, you've documented as essential to understanding why these triumphalist and exceptional narratives exist is the doctrine of discovery. Could you explain a little bit more about that? What is the doctrine of discovery and how... Has it shaped our culture? Sure. When we look at narratives and the way that narratives get embedded into our uh, worldview and embedded into our imagination, uh, we have to realize how deep these things run and how these themes keep showing up over and over again. So in our book, uh, Unsettling Truths, we actually look at two threads. So the doctrine of discovery is one of those threads. Uh, the doctrine of discovery was a series of papal bulls uh, issued in the 15th century. Uh, the first set was actually sent to the prince, uh, the king of uh, Portugal, Alfonso, and addressed specifically to his uncle, uh, 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 Prince Henry. And uh, Prince Henry, as some of you know through the hist historical annals, uh, we find out that Prince Henry was one of the progenitors of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, he was one of the first ships that came off the coast of West Africa and would transport black bodies from Africa to the quote-unquote new world. Now, Prince Henry was able to do this because he was given permission uh, by the church, and he was given a, a theological doctrine, the doctrine of discovery, that eventually would become a political, military, um, a, a geopolitical document uh, or a doctrine. Uh, so the theological assertion was that white bodies or European bodies were more made in the image of God and therefore inherently superior to other bodies throughout the world. And so with a, when a white body would gaze upon a black body in Africa, that white person, in this case, Prince Henry, can look at that black body and say, that person is not made in the image of God. It's less than human. Therefore, I have the authority, maybe even the right and responsibility as a good Christian evangelist to take that body into captivity and use that person as slave labor. So what the doctrine of discovery did in its first iteration was actually give permission to the European powers, a theological permission, a theological imagination and justification to go ahead 
and take black bodies into captivity. So it became a theological dysfunctional doctrine that actually got applied in a geopolitical, political way. Uh, the second half is even more troubling, it's just as troubling, in that it was sent to uh, the king and queen of Spain, uh, another European power at the time, and uh, their names are Ferdinand and Isabella, and addressed one of their subjects, someone by the name of Christopher Columbus. And in fact, one of the documents was sent in 1493, which was the year after 1492, which is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue. So there's a very specific action that, um, that uh, the Pope is taking here to affirm this kind of empire value that Spain is trying to exhibit. And it does the same thing. It gives a theological justification to a political action or a geopolitical military action, which is to say, again, Europeans, your bodies are more made in the image of God. You are the true image bearers of God. So that when you encounter other bodies, non-European bodies, you are not encountering human beings. You're encountering someone less than. And so Columbus can go to the American continent and say, I discovered a new continent. Now you can't discover something where 6 million people already reside and 2000 civilizations already in existence. You can't do that unless you have been theologically brainwashed to think you're the real human and everything else before you is a blank slate. There are no other humans on this continent. And that's when you can declare yourself, I discovered America, or there's a declaration of I discovered America. So what the doctrine of discovery did was it gave a theological justification for geopolitical atrocities, slavery and genocide. Uh, what the problematic aspect of that is that that narrative gets embedded into the American worldview in the founding of America. It, it shows up many years later uh, through another venue, which I can't get into, it's a much longer discussion, uh, through the many venues of the Puritans and the pilgrims who saw themselves as the true image bearers and they would go to the new world and create a new civilization, a new world. Um, that meant, of course, the destruction of the old world uh, destruction of life already on, on that continent, Native Americans, and they could use slave labor to build up that new world because they were endowed with the image of God. They saw themselves as the new Jerusalem, the new Zion, uh, and the language was a city set on a hill. They saw themselves with a manifest destiny that would go from the East Coast to the West Coast, uh, from sea to shining sea. All of this was actually theological language. Uh, the promised land motif, the manifest destiny motif. These were theological imaginative um, uh, narratives that got embedded into the American worldview. And so the, it's the problem of the doctrine of discovery is, is the doctrine itself is very problematic. But how much that doctrine got into the narrative of Americans can view themselves as superior and in fact, endowed by God and their creator, their creator to do all these atrocities and to justify it, to say slavery was okay because black folks got to become Christians. Uh, uh, manifest destiny and the genocide of, of native was okay because, hey, look at this great country that we've built. Um, it's okay if certain lives are lost, whether that be black lives or old lives or, or native lives or Hispanic lives, that's okay as long as we make America great again and get our economy humming again. Um, that's an Im embedded narrative of white supremacy or white superiority. And uh, that's where the doctrine of discovery, that narrative persists, obviously in different iterations and expressions, 
But that assumption, that theological assumption of white superiority or white supremacy is what has been embedded into our psyche. And the doctrine of discovery is one of those key moments where we see that apply. I think a lot of people would feel like that was 500 years ago. And like, yeah. clearly, you know, everything on my Facebook feed is Black Lives Matter. So like, how, how can you say that, you know, that has impacted where we're at today? Um, sure. and, and so, you know, what are some good ways for people to reflect and maybe see inside of themselves to see that, okay, so much of our culture is downstream from this. And yes. so much of who I am is downstream from our culture. So this is in me. H how do we go about parsing that out and like really yes. getting beneath the surface? Yes. I mean, one of it is the truth telling that um, this lodges uh, this uh, dysfunctional narrative and uh, sinful narrative that has been embedded in. Uh, so we have to recognize it is one of the first things. So I think one of the ways that I, I, I do want to point out um, uh, the challenge on this is that we tell, we tell the stories, right? We tell the stories. Um, so uh, here's one of the ways that I've addressed it with actually with the Asian American community. Uh, a few years ago, I was asked to speak uh, to a group of Asian American Christian at Harvard University. And, um, you know, these students had gotten to Harvard by the strength and their abilities. They got their perfect SAT scores and they got their 4.0s and involved in every extracurricular activity to get to Harvard. So they achieved that kind of privilege to be at Harvard University. Uh, so when I began speaking to this group about issues around racial justice, um, I could see many of them tuning out or not getting it because uh, on one level, Asian Americans are disconnected from that generational reality, right? So most of our immigration to the U.S. is post-1970s, right, um, after the change in immigration laws. So you know how like many white Christians says, well, I've never owned a slave, even if my ancestor says I've never owned a slave. Or I've never taken land uh, personally away from Native Americans, even if my ancestors did. Well, if there's a group that can say that, it's Asian Americans. Uh, not only have we never owned a slave, or not only have we never taken land away from Natives, we weren't even around when most of that went down. So, you know, we came in, you know, 50 years back when, you know, all of that had already happened. So if there's a group that is the most innocent in that sense of the word of culpability uh, with uh, uh, the, the issues around race and racial injustice, it, you could say it's Asian Americans. But here's what I said to the group of Harvard students. Um, the land that you're on right now, Harvard University, whose land is it built upon? Uh, the money that was used to build up Harvard University, uh, where did that money come from? Uh, what happened was that it was land taken uh, through broken treaties and through misgivings and misdealings uh, from Native American communities. And it was um, money that was coming in from a slave economy that was built on slave labor. And so when I kind of reflect on American economic greatness now, uh, the reality is uh, American economic economy was built on two things, free land and free labor. And if you know anything about basic economics, if you say that you are given free labor and free capital, um, there's no way you can mess up a business when you've been given free land and free labor. I mean, yeah. you would have to be the worst business person in the world. And so when Absolutely. America has had free land and free labor and we built this great economic engine, congratulations, you did what anybody <laughs> should have been able to do by using free land and free labor. Um, so... We were part of a, an economic system and engine that was built, that was built and predicated on injustice. 
And even though we can say, well, that was hundreds of years ago where that occurred, there's no question we benefit from that economic system now. Just like those Harvard Asian students, even though their ancestors were not in the United States when most of this went down, uh, they're still beneficiaries of an economic engine that was built on free land and free labor that exploited and tapped into these dysfunctional narratives of white supremacy. And so, yes, we are removed from that. At the same time, we are still beneficiaries of that system and beneficiaries of that narrative. And if we are beneficiaries of that narrative and system, uh, we, have a, we have a responsibility to speak against the system that we've benefited from while also excluding, marginalizing, and oppressing others. Yeah, that, that, that is so important, um, which brings me to, to this. So we're recording this on, on, on Monday, June 8th. Just this past Friday, my wife and I, we, we decided to go uh, food shopping. We're in the middle of Queens. We, we, we go to the supermarket, and we're standing in line to get into the supermarket, and there's a woman in front of us, and she has a bag, and the, and the man doesn't want to let her in. The man who works with the supermarket doesn't want to let her in. He's trying to tell her, you have to check your bag. That's our store policy. Hmm. She's, and she thinks that she's, he's saying that he can't, she can't come in with that bag. And hmm. she gets outraged, and she screams. Now, she didn't see me, yeah. and she screams out, it's the blacks that steal. Wow. It's the blacks that steal. They're the ones who are looting. Wow. Mm. And I'm with my wife, and I'm just like, wow. Wait, what? Wow. And I and I turn and, and and I and I get in front of the woman and I say, did did you just say the it's the blacks that steal? And then she switches wow. and becomes like this victim, like no, no, well, he won't yeah. let me in, and you know, and it was just really, really frustrating. You know, my wife, you know, tried to t- tried to set her straight, um, but that that was just what's crazy is it wasn't it wasn't a white person, That's it was right. a Hispanic woman. Yeah. Yeah, the Hispanic yeah. coming from uh, a, an Asian church, yeah, and experiencing discrimination, hearing yeah. the stories, hearing things like my parents don't want me to hang out with black kids. But well, what, what about me? I'm I'm your youth leader. Oh no, right. you're the good ones, right? Right. That's yeah. the conversation. In 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 in, <laughs> it feels like the whole world just does not just yeah. piles on onto black black people, and so so reckon. Reckoning race issues is more significant than just black and white. Yeah. Uh, there are racist narratives towards blacks in ethnic communities as well. Yes. What would you say to the listener who, who, who is someone who is non-African, who's a non-African American person of color, um, that, that just feels that reckoning um, yes. racism is irrelevant to them? But this is where it's so, again, painful for me as an evangelical Christian, uh, Asian American. Um, at the same time, my formation spiritually as a Christian and as a scholar uh, and as a pastor has been within the black community. Um, and so that has shaped me and changed me about how I view my spiritual life um, uh, because I have experienced firsthand what it means to... Um, to be under the leadership and, um, you know, one, to have my whole academic career depend on African-American scholars in a good way, that my, you know, understanding of, of, of my, my intellectual exercise as, as a theologian was dependent on African-American scholarship, uh, but as a pastor to how much my spiritual formation was shaped by that. Uh, the reason I'm telling that is that that's a counter narrative to the narrative that you just described. Um, 
And part of the power and white privilege and white power uh, and white supremacy is the power to determine for society how others are viewed. Now, we see this in the Bible, actually, because isn't this what Adam does? Adam looks at certain aspects of creation, and part of this endowment of the image of God is the belief that Adam can name the animals. And that actually gives him kind of an authority over the animals, right? Now, what I would argue is that that this a dysfunctional expression of that is the white male in the place of Adam naming and identifying all others. And the, the greatest contrast, of course, would be the white male vis-a-vis the black male. And how the white male views the black male has become determinative for all of American society of how the black male is viewed. And so Asians will view the black male the way the white male views the black male. Uh, Latinos, Native Americans, uh, are, the pressure is to view the black male the way the white male, is view, white male views the black male, the gaze of the white male upon the black male. And so the struggle is how do you upend that? So one of the ways that I've described this is that when the white male looks at the black male, he sees the black male as either a pet or a threat. Um, the pet is some of it you were describing is, oh, black people are okay if they entertain us, if they play basketball, shut up and dribble, uh, or if they're the hip hop artists that, uh, you know, hip hop, you know, their lyrics are reform theology and will bring them to all the, you know, uh, uh, Christian uh, uh, mm. youth rallies and gatherings, wow. or Oof. if their theology Jesus. reflects our, you know, our, you know, uh, reform theology and they fit with our perspective on these things, then we'll bring them out. Um, and then the comedians who entertain us. Um, but what happens is that uh, the other category is of a threat, right? And that threat is usually the unidentified black male. The unidentified black male who leads the six o'clock news with pretty much every crime that's talked about. The unidentified black male looted a store today. The unidentified black male was involved in a gang fight. An unidentified black male was arrested for distributing drugs in your neighborhood. This unidentified black male is approximately 15 years old to 45 years old, weighs anywhere from 150 to 300 pounds, is anywhere from five foot eight to six foot eight inches tall. If you have seen such a black male, notify the authorities immediately because they are a threat to your neighborhood. And so it becomes any black male, no matter how young, Demir Rice, 12 years old, no matter how skinny, Trayvon Martin, no matter how helpless, lying on the ground, with uh, two men restraining him and one on the neck and another on the lookout, they are all threats. And that threat has to be subdued. So that perspective of the white male seeing the black male as a threat is what has become internalized in the narrative of American society. So that as an Asian man, I am influenced by that narrative and to see a black man as a threat, unless they are a pet, unless they are entertaining me. And then the other one, of course, is when the pet becomes a threat. That's one of the greatest dangers to American society. So you can be a great athlete who leads your team to the Super Bowl with a mediocre backup team. The second you take a knee, you go from being a pet to a threat. And what happens to that threat? Eliminated. Never allowed to play in the NFL again. You can be that hip-hop artist who sings about reform theology, but the second you start talking about race, you do anything on your webpage or anything on your Twitter feed that talks about race, all of a sudden you are a threat and you need to be removed from evangelical Christianity. This has happened over and over and over again. These narratives are so embedded in American Christianity 
that evangelicals of color oftentimes buy into that narrative as well. That could be Asian American, Latinos, Native Americans. We have been told by the white male, when you see a black male, he's either a pet or a threat. And therefore, that's how you need to relate to him. And so the way you break that is to have relationships outside of those two categories. That's why I often say one of the best ways to break through racism is not to have that one black friend. Uh, you all know that Chris Rock's uh, bit, right? Where Chris Rock says, every black person I know has 10 white friends and every white person has one black friend. There's that one black friend with 10 white friends and the 10 white friends have that one black friend. So, yeah. you know, that whole idea of that one black friend, you know, let's, let's get past this. What I will say is that um, the tougher thing, especially for all, you know, especially the American Christian community, is when we have African-Americans not as our buddy as our sidekick mm -hmm. uh but as our mentors as our pastors as our spiritual directors and spiritual leaders uh because the truth is every single african-american has had a white person in leadership and authority over them at least once in their life probably four five six times especially in the american evangelical world if you went to an evangelical seminary you had 10 white professors and that was probably it <laughs> Uh, you've had white supervisors and in a varsity and in Campus Crusade and everywhere you've gone, you've had a white senior pastor, a white supervisor in your denomination, a white professor in your seminary. Uh, the reverse is oftentimes not the case. If you ask a white evangelical, how many mentors, not friends, but mentors have you had? And that sadly goes for Latino evangelicals and Asian evangelicals. And so, you know, I went to... Uh, uh, a seminary at an evangelical seminary at a time there was a huge influx of Korean seminary students. And um, it was amazing how much the Korean seminary students were trying to approximate whiteness. We were outdoing the white students. We love Jonathan Edwards more than the white students did. We love uh, you know, John Calvin more than the white students did. Uh, we loved mm -hmm. John Piper and Tim Keller. Good men, by the way. I'm not you know, discounting their ministry, especially as, as many of us may have heard, Tim Keller's uh, bout with pancreatic cancer. Yeah. Good men. But they aren't the only pastors and theologians that are out there. And so right. evangelicals of color, Latino, Asian, Native American, uh, mostly I would say Asian American probably buys into this most. Um, we've bought into this narrative of white superiority and the black male more as a pet or a threat, and we don't relate to each other in other ways. And so that's why multi-ethnic churches are one of the places where that can be disrupted, this narrative of white supremacy, uh, where hopefully you have a multi-ethnic leadership team, multi-ethnic elder board, multi-ethnic pastoral staff, multi-ethnic teaching team, multi-ethnic worship, so that every week at least you are seeing a visible representation that, uh, that other ethnic groups and other races and cultures can contribute to your spiritual formation. That I think is one of the ways that we begin to upend the narrative of white supremacy. And I agree, it's not just among white folks, it's among other people of color yeah. as well. Mm. Absolutely. And, and I know for me as um, Hispanic uh, American, that is definitely something that I, I see in the Hispanic community. Colorism is a huge thing yeah. um, still. And it's, it's, it's unbelievable the way, um, you know, are, are they view or we view the the narrative of uh, are we kind of take it on you know this the same um, ideals almost like in, in a a sense of like wanting to be like them right yeah like it's almost like we subconsciously take on or we, we see the power they have and so we want to be like them 
Um, yeah, if I could, critique, so yeah, if I can critique mm-hmm. Asian Americans for a minute. Sorry, uh, just the, the, your your, no, your sure. question sparked this. Um, during the time mm-hmm. of apartheid in South Africa, uh, Japanese businessmen were trying to figure out their category of race in South Africa. They couldn't be categorized as white. Uh, they didn't want to be categorized as black or coloreds, which were kind of two racialized categories. But they also didn't want to be categorized as Asian because in South Africa, Asian meant South Asian, mostly Indian, and meant merchant class. So mm-hmm. South Africa created a category because they wanted Japanese businesses. For the Japanese businessmen, they were called honorary white people. And so the problematic mm-hmm. aspect of that is that many of us strive for honorary white person status in American society. Absolutely. Uh, part of the problem is that Asians probably can do that best. Uh, Willie Jennings, my, my, uh, my uh, teacher, puts it another way. He says, um, salvific viability is oftentimes tied to approximation of whiteness. And uh, Asian Americans have probably done better in approximating whiteness in American society. We go to the schools and we get the type of jobs and we have the type of churches and we show up at these conferences uh, and we are able to approximate whiteness better. Uh, Latinos kind of fall a little bit further away from that. And so hence the identification of Latinos as further away in terms of leadership capacity, in terms of input and, you know, their theology is a little bit further away than Asian theology, Mm -hmm. right? So the Asian Americans have good reformed theology, so you can teach at the Presbyterian Reformed schools, but Latinos, Mm -hmm. you all probably dabble in that liberation stuff, so we need to push you out a little (laughs) bit further. African Americans, you all dabbling in black theology, so we need to push out a little bit further. And so the approximation of whiteness for Asian Americans, that's been a benefit for us. Uh, and mm-hmm. part of that is to, sh- to shirk that off and say, wait, this is not what the kingdom of God was intended. I'm sorry, I interrupted you because I had that thought about No, it. no, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's a great piece. And because and, I'm also continuing to form my response to even people in my community. Um, and so even when we talk about, um, you know, we're, we're talking about this time in history, this moment in history that we're in, um, where where people are suffering and people are hurting right now. And so, you know, I know you have spoken about in the past um, about how the church lacks a theology of lament and lacks a theology of suffering. Um, and so I guess I want to ask the question, um, I mean, or, or just maybe get your response. What do you think lament and suffering looks like right now? Um, maybe there's someone listening um, who is a, a church leader and, and is not understanding the role that plays, or maybe there are people listening who are suffering and limiting. They don't know how to, how to view that. Um, what might your response be to that? Yeah. Lament is the appropriate response, uh, mm-hmm. appropriate liturgical and ecclesial response to the reality of suffering and pain that is in the world. Uh, so there's a couple of uh, things embedded in that response. One is recognizing the reality of suffering and pain in the world. Now, that was a battle for a long, long time, right? So people are saying, oh, there's no such thing as racism. There's no such thing as institutional racism. These are bad apples, these isolated incidents. So hopefully we're at a moment where that's being examined, that we're getting a clear snapshot and a clear picture of the reality of brokenness in our world, not just in the individual, but also in our world. Um, so the, the question then is what you're raising is, well, what's the appropriate response to that? Um, mm-hmm. When you have built a narrative of exceptionalism and triumphalism, the inappropriate response is to revert to triumphalism, to say, okay, this clearly needs a white savior to come fix this problem, 
right? This clearly needs a white person to stand up and on behalf of white people, do all the things, draw attention to myself and say, I'm the one, I'm the answer you're looking for. You know, I'm the guy that's turned it around and follow me as I lead the charge against racism. Well, that actually is embedding and deepening white exceptionalism. And so they would actually exasperate problem rather than solve the problem. Yeah. Um, so the proper response then is not revert to exceptionalism and triumphalism but to introduce a new narrative or a new spiritual practice. And that's the spiritual practice of lament. And what I argued in my book was that this practice of lament has, is so absent in the American church because we bought into exceptionalism and, and triumphalism as the, as the dominant narrative. Uh, so lament requires us to be honest about our brokenness. Lament requires us to say, well, we can't fix this ourselves. Uh, lament is obviously a very Christian biblical theme. Because without lament, you don't have confession. Without an honest introspection of this is what is wrong with us, what are you, what are you asking for? You know, when you, know when, when you ask for salvation, you're asking for salvation from a brokenness. But if you're asking for salvation, uh, I'm okay. I, I didn't do anything wrong. I don't know what I did wrong anyway. But I'm just going to, you know, just to be safe, I'm going to ask for God to save me. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we're doing with the race problem. Um, yeah. I'm okay. I haven't really done anything wrong. I don't think the system is all that bad, uh, but I feel like people want me to do this. So I'll go ahead and say, yeah, let's, let's find our salvation answer for racism um, without saying, well, what is the root of our sin? What is the depth of our sin? And that is what lament does. Lament calls us to get, take a realistic look at our history. Uh, my, in my book, I did a commentary in the Book of Lamentations, and one of the things I point out is that the lament in Lamentations is in the form of a funeral dirge, which means it's a dead body. So most of us view the problem of race through the lens of a hospital visit, right? Someone is sick. Mm -hmm. Oh, but it's okay. That person is going to get better. So you go to a hospital, and you hold hands, and you sing Kumbaya, and you hug it out. You say, I love you, man you know, kind of the whole promise keepers thing about 20 years ago, and, you know, everybody's happy and everybody lifts their hands as I love you, brother. And then everybody forgets about it. Um, when a person in the hospital, that kind of triumphalistic expectation might be appropriate. But when there's a dead body in the room, you can't do that. Mm. It requires a funeral dirge. And, you know, I'm a seminary professor. I would never teach my students to behave the same way in a hospital, the way you would behave in a funeral. You just don't do that. That's just inappropriate. So many of us are thinking we're at a hospital visit when no, we're actually at a funeral. And here's the, the, the sad part about the funeral. All the dead bodies are black bodies or red bodies or people of color. And so when we see these dead bodies in the room, we could say, oh, that doesn't matter. Who cares if you know this person died this way? It's just a few bad apples, et cetera, et cetera. Um, lament calls us to a reckoning to say there are dead bodies in this room and we've got to deal with these dead bodies. Uh, and again, it's hard to do when you have been so wrapped around exceptionalism and triumphalism that it becomes, oh, we don't need to, we don't need to address the, the problems. We don't need to address the dead bodies. We just go on, join hands and kumbaya and move forward from here. We just build multi-ethnic churches that just, you know, gets people together without any concern about a history or a past. Uh, that is going to be more counterproductive than actually stopping and saying, what is the brokenness in our society? What is the sin, the evil? And why, uh, why is this so broken? What is the history here? And then to begin to lament and then move towards a reconciliation out of a lament, not out of a triumphalism. Mm. Mm. Yeah.
That is, that is, I'm, I'm very uh, frustrated with the narrative coming out of, out of the church. Um, often I'm hearing like a blanketed statement, like, you know, we just, just people need to know who Christ is. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I know that. Like I've been in, in, yes. in ministry and church leadership for over 10 years. Like I, I, I could get that part, but can we focus here? Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and it's just so belittling to the funeral. Yeah. It's yeah. so disrespectful to the funeral. Yeah. So I, I, um, I love that. I think that that's really poignant right now. Yeah. I mean, one of the ways that we saw this in an extremely dysfunctional way was, you know, we're in a national funeral. We're in a national lament right now. That's what's actually, I think, a positive where folks who recognize this as a lament are beginning to say, well, what, what, are, we, what are we doing wrong? So it's a public lament, and appropriately, uh, laments in the Bible are pro- uh, personal, private, but also corporate and out loud. It's, it's a, the loud laments in the Bible as well. Uh, so that's what we're in the middle of. So in the middle of this lament, there have been these really troubling, dysfunctional intrusions of exceptionalism, triumphalism. Uh, and probably the most troubling was on our national leadership when the president said, uh, George Floyd must be happy that uh, unemployment numbers are down. I mean, that was just the most evil thing I've heard anybody say. In a moment of lament, to use a dead body to promote your political economic agenda. By the way, those numbers are wrong in that black unemployment actually went up during that time. White unemployment stopped, uh, stepped down. Black unemployment actually got higher. And so to invoke the name of a dead body in that way is clearly showing how deeply embedded, and it's not just the president, it's those who looked at that and said, yeah, that's, that's what we got to talk about more, the good stuff, uh, rather than the lament itself. And that, again, shows how deeply embedded this dysfunctional narrative of exceptionalism and triumphalism is, that reflexively we act out of it, or we rejoice when we, when we can have news like that. It's, hey, the economy is going to recover now. That makes George Floyd, you know, uh, on, the, on the bottom half of the news now, rather than the top half of the news, when we're still in the middle of this funeral stage and lament mm-hmm. stage. And so, again, we're in this moment in history, um, movements all over the world are, are happening. I guess the question I have for you then, um, when all of this dies down, when this moment dies down, what would you like to see um, or how would you like to see this momentum used to enact change? Well, there's a couple of things that I'm excited about that's happening. One is that this kind of movement has been very decentered. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing you'll notice, and you know, I have not been out to the protest, my, my daughter has, she's been out there, uh, and she tells me, you know, um, I ask her, well, how do you find out about these things? Now, for me, I get like email requests of clergy gatherings, and, and so I'm, I'm Gen X boomer generation, that's how we communicate. We organize something and we say we're going to gather at this time, uh, and my daughter says, <laughs> it just shows up on Instagram or on a Twitter feed, and you yeah. just go, and you know. And so you've seen a lot of grassroots, especially among the young people through social media, where people are just showing up. You know, there's no plan. And usually at these things, there isn't like a featured speaker. Like the older folks, when we gather, we have a featured speaker. We have such and such pastor from such the largest church in our neighborhood. He's going to speak. At these other gatherings, which were mostly young people, they just like do an open mic time and say, hey, anybody wants to come up and, and share this story, go ahead and share it. So I think that's going to be one of the more exciting developments. And I hope churches pick up on this because churches are always saying, we got to reach the young people. Look what the young people are doing. They're not saying, this is our leader. Get up and that person represents us. 
there is, it is much more decentered. It is much more, everybody has a voice. Everybody's included. And you'll see this is also, it's not just African-Americans who are, you know, on the streets. It is a very diverse coalition. I am, that's one of the most exciting things to see. So those two factors, I think we need to take very seriously as a church, that one, we're definitely seeing um, the millennials, the Zoomers showing this is the way maybe uh, a gathering should be done much more decentered as in you know you don't have the one superstar up there you know representing us and, and doing everything and you know that's a bygone era uh so decentered and, and and again social media i think is a part of that uh but also you know it's it really does create a sense of community that is diverse uh we're in this together we are supporting each other uh we are we have each other's backs and that crosses racial cultural uh dynamics and again it kind of goes against the mono-ethnic church principles that evangelicals are still, uh, many of us are holding on to. So these are two positive developments that I think in terms of methodology uh, that we are seeing Zoomers and millennials lead us in this way to say, um, this is the way change occurs, not with one heroic individual, Billy Graham, or even a King or RFK, JFK. Uh, That's kind of a different era. Uh, This is the era where it is much more diffuse and decentralized. Uh, That's hopeful for me. And especially if the churches can recognize this and say, yeah, maybe this is the way we begin movements within the Christian community as well. Uh, not to like insist that, oh, we got to get back to our 3,000 person services so that COVID can spread within our congregation type of thing. You know, that, that is probably, that's going to have a very short shelf life. That's going to that's die out real quick. And again, those are Xers and Boomers. That generation is, is riding off into the sunset. Millennials and Zoomers, they have no problem doing an internet service. Um, I would love to see what Twitter ch- church looks like, what Instagram church looks like, um, yeah. and you know what kind of these kind of impromptu gatherings uh, look like for church folk. Uh, so I think that's a positive development. Uh, the other thing that I like to see with this kind of hopefully reawakening or an awakening around these issues is a is a long term commitment, especially by white clergy, to enter into a time of lament uh, together. So. You know, I I really appreciate what Mitt Romney did. He went out there and he Mm -hmm. decided to walk with churches and, and, you know, even on his, you know, this is huge for a, 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 you know, very staunch Republican uh, from Utah, of all places, to get out there and march for Black Lives Matter. That's, that's pretty exciting. Mitt, what are you going to do for the next year? Give me a call. We'll sit down and we'll have a Bible study on race and race relations yeah. for the next year, once a month. I, you know, we'll, I'll make the time for you, Mitt Romney. Uh, you know, that would be an exciting development where, you know, Rick Warren says, like, like I said before, I'm shutting down. I'm turning over my church for the rest of the summer to people of color to speak. And I'm mm-hmm. going to spend the next three months under the leadership and under the tutelage of Willie Jennings and just have him teach me about black theology. And I'm going to sit under the tutelage of you know Jamar Tisby and have him teach me uh, mm-hmm. African American church mm-hmm. history. I'm going to sit under the leadership of uh, Brenda Salter McNeil and have her teach me the stories about reconciliation. Um, I'm going to sit under the feet of Mark Charles. Uh, you know there are there are folks here who have so much to say that um, if you were just to commit to one year and say I'm just going to spend one year uh, not leading but learning and lamenting alongside. Um, that could have decades worth of repercussions rather than, all right, I've got two weeks and then I ride this out and then we'll go back to business as usual, mm. uh, regularly scheduled programming. 
That's good. That's good. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sunshine Rao, just for being with us um, sure. here in City Image. It is uh, an unbelievable um, blessing, and I know people are going to be blessed, um, continue to be blessed um, uh, by this podcast, but by you and your work. Um, and, you know, I just uh, feel it right now. I'm, I was, I'm wondering if maybe just for like a minute or so, would you mind just like m- maybe saying a prayer um, over, you know, the people say, you know, we're, we're here based in New York City and, and we're also experiencing a lot of that as well. Um, so, yeah, if you if you could just like maybe just do a, a prayer over that, it would be amazing. Absolutely. I'll be honored. Uh, gracious God, we are reminded that uh, you are able to do immeasurably more than we could ever hope yeah. or imagine. We confess that our imagination and our hope is oftentimes small. It is limited. Uh, we think if we just change one individual, that's, that's, um, that will do it. Um, and we thank you for the individuals you've brought into our lives to change and to transform as pastors and as Christian leaders. Uh, but we pray a bold prayer. We pray for a change in the evil systems and structures in our world. Mm-hmm. We pray a tearing down of the broken narratives of the yeah. dysfunctional disease narratives in our world. We pray a prayer that, um, uh, that, um, because you've told us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities. We pray for the, the, the weapons of our warfare to be made right and true. Uh, the weapons yeah. of our spiritual battles to be revealed to us so that we can battle not, against, not just against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this present darkness. Uh, we know right now that this present darkness is, is, is racism, is the sin of, of white supremacy, is the sin of of, of, uh, of a narrative that has completely dehumanized uh, so many of our brothers and sisters. Um, and we ask, Lord, for the strength, the courage, um, the spiritual uh, depth and strength to continue to persevere in this battle. I know folks are weary. Um, it's been a double whammy, a triple whammy, uh, the coronavirus, unemployment, uh, and now um, uh, the death of of, uh, and, and, the, and, the, and the disallowance of, of black bodies in, in our narrative. Uh, it's, been, it's been one thing after another. And I know pastors are tired and I know Christian leaders are tired, but I pray for the, spirit, uh, sp- uh, the strength that comes from your Holy Spirit to continue to pour upon us so that we might seek the transformation of your people, uh, the transformation of our neighborhoods, our communities, and the people that you've called us to pastor, our nation and maybe even the world. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the strength and the conviction to continue to do so. For we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you. We thank, thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Hey, thank but before, you. before we get off, um, uh, uh, it's, it's really important for me to, uh, well, the, the narrative that I'm trying to push is to educate and educate. And so my, my question to you is what, how can we direct our listeners to you? What do you have going on? Um, so that they can sure. further in this education. Sure. I mean, uh, reading my books is always a good step. I'm going to move out of the way just a little bit there. Yeah. <laughs> you can see the you title of my most, most recent book, Unselling Truths. I think Prophetic Lament is a really appropriate book at this time, kind of the call to lament in these times. So um, the, those are kind of a couple of texts that I would represent, uh, re- uh, recommend. Um, I am trying to do a little bit more uh, in terms of teaching that is not necessarily in the seminary. Obviously, I teach uh, master's degree classes at, at North Park Seminary. I teach a doctorate program uh, that's combined Fuller and North Park. So if you're interested in that, you can also give me a give me a buzz. Um, I'm working, uh, uh, and this is uh, you can contact me directly on this. Uh, we are looking to set up uh, like a discipleship program for uh, uh, for pastors, a year long program on race. 
Uh, and we're looking for pastors. So if you're a pastor in this area, um, uh, we're, we're actually pulling together a team of teachers right now that I can't reveal the names, but they're names you'll recognize, particularly in evangelical circles as those who've been in, involved in this for a while now. So uh, if you're interested, you can either send me a Facebook message or a Twitter message and I can follow up. Uh, but we're trying to do this. An organization came to me and said, would you be willing to, along with several other uh, academics and pastors and leaders, uh, uh, do maybe a, a discipleship group or a learning group with, uh, with American pastors. So uh, those of you listeners who are interested in that, go ahead and send me a Facebook or a, a Twitter or sra at northpark.edu, and I'll be happy to follow. I can send forward your email to see uh, uh, if you if you want to participate in that kind of program. Awesome. That sounds amazing. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Fantastic. Blessings on you folks. Take care. City Image.